This is the C-SPAN Radio podcast, taking a look at the people, issues, and events shaping Washington, the nation, and our world. I'm Steve Scully. Our guest this week is the former Senate Republican leader, Trent Lott of Mississippi. We talked with him about how the Senate changed since he left 10 years ago, what he thinks needs to be done to get both parties to work together, and lessons from Watergate, the Clinton impeachment, and some of the grand political bargains of the 80s and 90s. We need to keep remembering that this system of government that our forefathers formed was the greatest that the minds of men have ever conceived. And when we treat it with the respect of the institution that it is, we can accomplish great things. Joining us on the phone is the former Senate Republican leader, Trent Lott of Mississippi. Senator, thank you very much for being with us. Glad to be with you, Steve. Is Congress working the way it should be? Absolutely not. Uh, You know, there have been difficult times throughout our history. And in the book that Tom Daschle and I wrote together, Crisis Point, we we take part of the uh, time in the book to talk about, you know, all the different difficult times uh, in Congress over the years. But um, there, there have been periods where there's been a lot of positive activity, and I uh, cite the, the 90s when Tom Nash and I were in leadership, Bill Clinton was president, and then, of course, with George W. Bush, and it was a very productive time. Uh, we passed welfare reform, tax cuts, balance of budget, military pay raise, safe drinking water. Uh, so we, we had a lot of, of bipartisan cooperation, and we produced some good things for, for the people. But beginning in 2006, it started to deteriorating. I, I couldn't help but sense that it was getting harder and harder to get things done and that it was getting meaner, uh, you know, spirited, that it wasn't enough just to defeat the other side. You wanted to destroy them. And I wasn't very comfortable with that uh, evolution. And, and so we reached the point that everybody has described pretty much as gridlock. And that's pretty much been the way it's been, been going since uh, t- really 2006. It's not just about the Obama administration. Uh, and then here we are again. I was hopeful that with the new administration and with the new Congress, even though they're all Republican, that there would be an opportunity to to begin to break the gridlock and get things going forward. Well, we're seeing with the nominations an atmosphere that's certainly not conducive to moving things forward in a positive way. But there is a way that can happen. It's going to require two things. Number one, leadership. And in Washington, it always begins in the White House and from the Congress. So Mitch McConnell and, and uh, Paul Ryan, are the speaker uh, in the House and the leader in the Senate, and Chuck uh, Schumer, the leader of the Democrats, have got to uh, get through this nomination process and to begin to take up bills that we need for the country and that does have the potential for bipartisan support. Obviously, uh, broad-based tax reform is long overdue. We haven't done it since 1986. Democrats realize we should cut the corporate tax rate and other taxes that are, are way too high. And the other thing is infrastructure. Now, you can argue over how do you pay for it, how much is it going to be, but everybody knows we have a problem in America with decay in infrastructure, roads, bridges, highways, ports, harbors, water, sewer. If they can get to those issues of substance, perhaps the gridlock will begin to break. And as you well know, the debate over the nuclear option, it really stems by the action of the former Democratic leader, Harry Reid. Was it a mistake for him to invoke that? And do you think we potentially could see it for a Supreme Court nominee? 
yeah, it was a mistake for him to book it, and uh, it was, uh, you know, it soured the well when he did it uh, for the, the next year or so, and now the Democrats are paying a price for that because they really can't block any nominee, and it's harder to stop legislation when you can, you know, you can get it done with, uh, you know, 51 uh, votes. Uh, i I personally, uh, I thought very seriously about doing it and, and did the whip work to count the votes. And at one point, we had uh, the votes to do it. Uh, I think I had 51 votes lined up to pull the, the trigger on the nuclear option back in the early part of the turn of the century. But I backed away from it because I, I am a... I like to th- consider myself a student of the rules and of history and tradition and why we have the rules we have in place. And I, I've concluded it was a mistake, so I, I backed away from it. But Harry pulled the trigger, all except the Supreme Court. Uh, I I hope that they won't change that, but uh, if the Democrats insist on filibustering uh, the nominee, Neil Gorsuch, then I don't know if Mitch McConnell will have much choice but to do that. But I hope they won't do it because it will once again change one of the traditions. There's a reason why minority rights have been assiduously protected and defended in the Senate because there's a unique role for the Senate. The Senate does not want to be the House of Representatives. It it needs to be a place where consensus is developed. Now, you know, Margaret Thatcher once described consensus uh, is the pursuit of small minds for solutions that don't exist or something like that. Uh, But consensus is how you build broad-based legislation and support from the American people. Let me go back to your book, and there are three points that you and uh, Senator Daschle highlighted in terms of how we reach this point. I want to take each one individually. First, the permanent campaign. How has that hurt Congress? Well, my, my friend Tom Daschle says the biggest problem in Washington is an airplane. You know why? Because uh, used to, in the in the past in the history of the 60s and 70s and the 80s and 90s that I participated in, uh, you know, members brought their families. They actually did things together. They socialized together. One of my partners here now and one of my best friends is John Bro, a Democrat from Louisiana. His family lived across the street from us. Our kids grew up. My wife is the godmother of one of their children. I, I was not going to do something mean-spirited to him the next day after we had been together. So they don't know each other. They don't socialize. They don't appreciate each other. They fly in here, or have been in recent years, flying in here on Monday night or Tuesday morning, particularly in the House. And uh, all I want to know from the leadership is what time can I leave Thursday? You can't govern. You cannot be a legislator in two or two and a half days. And the job is in Washington. If a member brings his family and does his job in Washington and loses because he didn't stay back home in Pascagoula, then he he probably doesn't want to represent those folks anyway. This is an important job. Now, I'm frankly, I'm pleased to see the Senate going around the clock. Uh, and if the Democrats continue to, to uh, drag out filibuster the nominations, I hope they'll go around the clock every day and into the weekend. Uh, but, you know, the House in recent years has been being in session uh, two weeks and out two weeks. Okay, so the problem is they're not here. Their families are not here. Uh, so they're not they don't have time really to legislate. And then you compound that by the fact that uh, in the House you're running all the time. I mean, it's it's a perpetual around the clock, around the year. Uh, you're up every other year, and you're told when you come in here, you've got to go over to the campaign headquarters and dial for dollars. Don't be messing around with the committee assignments. Go over there and raise money. And it's become an obsession and a distraction. Uh, and 
Now, it's easy enough to identify the problem. The solution is a lot tougher. But it begins with the leadership saying, hey, folks, we got problems in the country. The job is here. You're going to be here on Monday, and you're going to be here on Friday. And if you got good sense, you'll bring your family so you can know your children. Money was your second point. You mentioned dialing for dollars as members of the House and Senate travel across the street from the government offices to raise money for the next campaign yeah. cycle. So how has this hurt the Congress, but but also the amount of money, the the amount of outside money the we're seeing of money in these is campaigns? Staggering. You know, I, I, I talked to my former colleague from New Hampshire, uh, Judd Gregg, who was a uh, congressman and senator, and I've talked to him about the Senate race up there in New Hampshire. I think that Senate race in New Hampshire costs like $60 million. What I mean, you could almost buy the, the whole state for that. That's, that's <laughs> unbelievable. And, it, I mean, and that's a small state. Uh, you know, Tom Daschle, uh, when he was defeated for re-election, I think they spent like $40 million in South Dakota. It, it's just mind-boggling, uh, the amount of money. Now, the solution to that is a lot more difficult. Uh, the initial reaction always of Democrats is, oh, well, let's just do public financing. No, I'm opposed to that. I look for a different kind of solution. Rather, the, the, the problem is not necessarily the need for campaign finance reform. The need is for campaign reform. We need to do something about this around the clock, all day, every year, uh, campaigning. Uh, and so I think we ought to look at see if we could find some constitutional way to limit the period of time during which uh, money can be spent in a campaign. That's the way they do it in London. Now, I don't advocate a parliamentary system, but we've got to find a way to get a grip on the time and the amount of money that goes into uh, you know being a, a member of a two-year term in Congress, your third, let alone the Senate. Your third point was the 24-7 news cycle, and I would add to that social media. Sure. And I, I'm not the best one to even comment on the social media because it blows my mind. Uh, I really can't uh, comprehend it. Uh, I, Do I you don't follow like Donald Trump's tweets? I follow them and I'm unnerved by them. Uh, I don't think that's a, a good thing to be doing. Uh, you know, uh, you get in a little, you know, fracas over the, uh, you know, judges and you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, he's president of the United States. There's a certain amount of decorum that should be applicable. But the fact of the matter is, hey, that's the way it is. He has found a way to go over the head of the traditional uh, lame street media, and uh, he's using it to fare the well. And uh, candidates are going to have to learn, and, and members are going to have to learn, okay, well, how do I deal with the traditional media, but how do I also deal with the social media, uh, the, the, the coverage it gets, and Facebook, and Snapchat, and all this stuff. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, an era of very new media coverage that uh, it's going to take a, a modern approach to. Senator Lott, let me ask you about the nomination of Neil Gorsuch. And what we've been hearing from Senate Democrats is, look— Last year, President Obama had the right to put up a nominee. The Senate did not even hold a confirmation hearing for Merrick Garland. Was that a mistake by Senate Republicans as somebody who follows the Senate as an institution? Um, I probably would have, if it had been my decision, would have done it differently. Uh, I what might would you have, have done? Uh, said, let's have some hearings. But I, I have to say that I would have probably uh, gotten the same result. I, I would have found a way to, to block his confirmation. Uh, that has, I think, as a general rule in the last year of a term of a president, <clears throat> that they've not been inclined to fill a Supreme Court vacancy. Um, 
I, but you know, I, I also have a, a more traditional uh, attitude about you know uh, Supreme Court uh, nominations. When I first went to the Senate, I sat down with some of my colleagues that I respected, including my colleague from Mississippi, Thad Cochran, who's a good lawyer and was at the time on the Judiciary Committee. And I said, "How should we do this? Uh, how do we consider these uh, co- federal court nominees, particularly Supreme Court?" And our general discussion was, "Look, uh, con- elections have consequences." Presidents have a right to send up a nominee for the Supreme Court, for instance, and the Senate has a right to advise and consent. But if that person is basically qualified by education, experience, and demeanor, you should give them the benefit of the doubt. For instance, I voted for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I knew that philosophically I would not agree with her most of the time, and I was concerned that I would be embarrassed sometime. But I felt like... It was the president's right to send up the nomination. There was no strong reason to disqualify her, and so I voted for her. And that's what the Democrats ought to do here. They shouldn't filibuster Neil Gorsuch. Uh, they should, they should, uh, you know, make sure there's no real hidden problem in there. But they should vote to confirm him, and it should be done with, uh, you know, with 60 votes without having to pull the, the trigger on the nuclear option. You were in the House when President Reagan, back in 1987, nominated Judge Robert Bork to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. You certainly followed the debate and those hearings in the Senate. How toxic was it? Oh, it was very toxic, uh, the way uh, he was treated. You know, Bork became a verb. You know, he was, somebody was borked. Uh, I was very disappointed in, in the way that was done. But then when I was in the Senate, uh, one of the early confirmation processes I was, was involved in, was able to watch up close, was Clarence Thomas. And that was extremely uh, toxic also. And uh, I was for him, voted for him. Uh, but I, I really was uncomfortable with the way that w- was handled. Uh, I understand that the Supreme Court is very important, as are all federal judges. But I do think over the years we've we've allowed it to be demeaned and and diminished, frankly, to a, to a level that we need to try to find a way to get away from. Let me put a hypothetical on the table. Let's assume in 2020 a sitting justice of the Supreme Court retires or passes away. Do you think Senate Republicans would adhere to the same rule that Mitch McConnell put forth in 2016 and not go ahead with a confirmation vote or even a hearing for a nominee? Well, I doubt it. You know, yeah, we've learned that uh, I, I saw Senator Dianne Feinstein the other day say, well, we've got to remember what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Uh, there's a lot of payback going on, you know, um, uh, Mitch McConnell was was able to tie up the Senate and keep them from getting things done, and then Harry Reid did the nuclear option on a lot of the nominations, and that sounded even more. And now uh, the shoes on the other foot. McConnell's got the majority, and the Democrats are slow walking the nominations. Uh, at some point, the leadership uh, in Congress and in the White House has got to say, "Look, enough of the petty politics and the partisanship. We got some serious work to do here." Uh, and uh, we're, we're, not, we're going to stop this uh, tit-for-tat uh, of, of payback on judges or filibusters and all of that. But the only way that's going to happen is four things, and Tom Dash and I talk about that in our book. Number one is communication. If you're not talking and listening, you're not learning. And we need a president that will engage the Congress, that will talk to Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, that will invite Chuck Schumer up to the White House to have a drink and talk about how New Yorkers can get things done. We need men and women in the Congress that will develop a chemistry, a relationship, an appreciation, a respect for each other. We need a vision. What is it we're trying to do for our country? But most of all, 
There's one word that will solve all the problems in Washington, and that is men and women in leadership of courage that will determine we're not going to continue the pettiness. We're going to make this place work, and we're going to do it now. But that, as you well know, would and will require compromise. Is that a bad word these days? It seems to be these days. Look, I, I never camped in the middle of the road. I was always right of center. And I always tried to pull the debate and the votes and the result to my side of the ledger. But I, I used to say I didn't come to Washington to make a statement. I came to make a difference. And I adopted the Ronald Reagan theory. If I could get 80% of what I wanted to try to get on a tax bill or a highway bill or a defense bill, I would take that. Would I compromise? Yes. Was I a pragmatist? Yes. Was I a deal maker? Yes. And I'm not ashamed of it. And my record of things we got done when I was in leadership and when I was in the Senate speaks for itself. Did you, when you were the Senate Republican leader, ever invoke Rule 19, as we saw with Senator Mitch McConnell this past week? I did not, um, but I did do it in the House of Representatives. Uh, One time when I was a whip in the House, uh, Tip O'Neill came down off the rostrum and started impugning the integrity of Newt Gingrich, and I demanded that Speaker's words be taken down. And the chair had to rule he was out of order. Uh, and once the chair ruled, then I asked consent that the uh, the speaker's words be stricken from the record and we uh, go forward in regular order. Uh, I thought that Mitch McConnell did uh, did the right thing. I thought somebody should have done that to Ted Cruz last year, quite frankly, when he called Mitch McConnell a liar on the floor of the Senate. If I'd have been there, I'd have had him removed from the floor of the Senate. The New York Times, though, put it this way, that uh, they took away Senator Warren's microphone and gave her a megaphone. So based on everything that we've been talking here, does that only add to the toxic atmosphere in this town and in the Senate? It may add to it, but also this is a case of principle. You know, I would have done exactly what Mitch did. Even if I had thought about it and knew that it was going to give her an elevated platform, she was out of order. You can't allow that. You have got to have decorum and respect in institutions like the House and the Senate. And any House or Senate member of either party that begins to question the integrity of a colleague in the institution, you can't tolerate that. I would have done it. I was proud of of, uh, Mitch. So if you had a one-on-one conversation with the president, just the two of you in the Oval Office, what would be your unvarnished advice to him? Well, that'd be presumptuous, perhaps, on my my part. But um, I would I would urge him to uh, really engage with the leadership, listen to them, uh, you know, respect those institutions. He can't do it by himself. And I tell people there will come a moment when Mitch McConnell is going to have to tell this president, uh, like other presidents have been told, like I had to tell George W. Bush and Bill Clinton too. Uh, not going to do that. But. They're they're on the same team. They're they're not only just Republicans, they're also Americans. And uh, he really needs to listen to and engage and, and, uh, you know, uh, respect the knowledge. Uh, You know, let's talk about draining the swamp. Uh, Look, there are a lot of people in this swamp that that have done a good job for many years that could be helpful. So, you know, take the time to listen and learn, and and also, you know, show the dignity that the office does require. Why do you think this, I guess you call it a feud, between the president and 
Senator John McCain, a Republican from Arizona, the chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and you would assume that he'd be a key part of any plan by the Trump administration dealing with the military, and yet the back and forth with these tweets by the president. Well, I think uh, I know them. I, I know John McCain very well. I don't know Trump nearly as well, but uh, I just think that at some point they're going to find a way to make peace. If I were uh, President Trump, I would ask John to come over and sit down with me in family quarters, and I'd say, you know, uh, Senator, uh, you're, you and your family are legends. You are a hero, and I apologize for what I said back during the election. I need your help. And you know what John McCain would do? He'd do whatever he could to help him. You know, I used to fight with John McCain all the time. When I was a majority leader, the Republican leader, I blocked uh, his ideas about campaign finance reform for four years. Uh, I filled up the, the tree to block all amendments, I think, like 12 times. I think four of those times it was to block John McCain. We fought like uh, cats and dogs all the time. But we never quit finding a way to work together. I left him every day, mad as he might be. I left him where I could come back the next day and say, hey, John, can you give me a hand here? That's what ought to happen between those two. These are, you know, these these guys are two titans. If they were pulling together, there's no telling where these team of horses could go. I remember in a conversation we had with you and Senator Lott, we were talking about, among other things, Watergate. And you said something that struck me, and I want you to uh, elaborate a bit on that, because you said during the Watergate crisis, it was institution above political party, and the system worked. And I ask you yeah. about that because everyone says it's never been this bad. Will you live through Watergate, the first and only time a sitting president forced out of office? What are the lessons? Well, I began my career sitting on the Judiciary Committee during the impeachment trial of Richard Nixon after Watergate, and I concluded my career to degree to a degree presiding over the Senate for the impeachment trial of William Jefferson Clinton. Uh, and here's what I learned from both of them. Uh, when you get to that sort of issue, the seriousness of it, the impact on the country, I watched men and women of both parties sort of sober up and say, wait, wait, you, you know, there, there's a principle here. There's a higher calling here. We're going to do the right thing. But it also taught me that the office of the presidency is by far much bigger than any one man. And if one man falls away, the next man or woman will step up and fill the void. We need to keep remembering that this system of government that our forefathers formed was the greatest that the minds of men have ever conceived. And when we treat it with the respect of the institution that it is, uh, we can accomplish great things. Do you miss the Senate? You know, I, a lot of people ask me that, and I, I think people are kind of surprised at my answer. And, and it is, no, not really. Uh, I actually intended not to run again in 2006. I'd promised my wife that I would hang it up after about 32 years or whatever it was. And then Katrina hit my state and destroyed my neighborhood, my own house, and, and hurt so many of the people that I love the most. I just couldn't retire in 2006. So I ran uh, to try to stay until I could see through Katrina. But then after 35 years, um, and I always promised myself I wouldn't stay until they had to carry me out, that I would, uh, you know, say hey, at some point, hey, it's enough. And so I think I, I not only ran my race, I ran an extra lap. 
And so it was time to move on, and I couldn't. I got to where I couldn't pay my bills, and I couldn't do anything special with my children and grandchildren. And so, um, and Katrina had taken a lot of the starch out of me in terms of financially. So it was time for me to move on. But also, um, because I've been with John Bro as a partner and in, 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 in this firm here, Squire Patton Boggs, I watch the Senate and the House every day. I read exactly what they're doing. I watch the debates. Uh, I study the bills. And so uh, while I'm not there, I'm still very much engaged in, in what they're doing and, and, uh, and how I feel about what they're doing. Senator Trent Lott from Mississippi joining us on the phone. Thank you, as always, for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Steve. I enjoyed it. This has been the C-SPAN Radio podcast. You can follow C-SPAN Radio on Twitter and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. Be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast player. And a reminder, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as iTunes, Google Play Music, TuneIn, and Stitcher. Thank you for listening.